0: Welcome to the Painting of the Week podcast, where we look at some of the most significant paintings throughout history. Introducing your hosts Phil Grabsky and Laura Bentham. And welcome to this week's Painting of the Week. I'm here as ever with Laura Hello Laura. Hello
1: Phil.
0: <laughs> and today we are going to talk about a painting uh, called Wanderer Above the Sea of Fog. I feel like that a bit sometimes. What that we've... <laughs> wandering above the sea, a sea, of... A sea of fog. Yeah. Wandering in a sea of fog. It, yeah, anyway, especially one... at the
1: moment for sure.
0: Freshly at the moment. Wanderer Above the Sea of Fog by Caspar David Friedrich. Um, and this painting was... Uh, done around about 1817 and you can find it in two places uh, you can either go to the art gallery of Hamburg to um, <laughs> see the real one or go to our website seventh-art.com and uh, and click on the podcast and bring it up uh, and for those of you of course listening stroke watching this on YouTube then course you're already looking at the painting let's start a slightly different way today when you look at this painting laura
1: yes
0: (laughs) what would be because i do a lot i have to think a lot about musical soundtracks and composition of scores for my films
1: Mm.
0: what would be what would be your musical background to this you're looking at this painting or say this was a film that's a real man standing on top of that bluff what's the score
1: Okay, well, so I spent possibly about five hours with this, with music. Because I just completely, the for me, it was all about the music. Great. I was just like, you have to have the music on this one. So. <laughs> well, let me ask why did you think that on this well, one? Well, this is, that's, that's because of the contemplation. Okay. Over that scene. The first thing that happens to me is, and this is why I was got a bit into this actually I was thinking you know when you go to an art gallery and there's never really any music particularly yeah people mumbling away there's always been a thing isn't it I'm assuming but now everyone's got headphones so now people are going to be thinking actually I might pop a little bit of music on Mm. while I'm looking at this well some
0: of the audio guides have a bit of music don't they
1: exactly but anyway so I've gone (laughs) I went from Beethoven number 6 yeah. Richard Strauss Alpine Symphony. Yeah. Then I went to Mendelssohn The Hebrides Overture yeah. Fingal's Cave.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And then I ended up on one of my all-time favorites and it really really is which was Elgar's Nimrod.
0: Mm. I think that has Ella and my daughter would know because she's very good with music. I think that's often Classic FM's number one. Is it? You know, they do like top 300 pieces as voted for by the listener. And I'm pretty sure Nimrod comes in there at number one. Well, it
1: does for me. It does for me. And then I did a modern piece. I got onto some modern ones. Okay. And I really love this band called VNV Nation. Okay. Which is, yeah, I mean, it's sort of sort of soundtrack pieces, synthesizers, and they've got this one record called Collide. It's about six minutes. Hmm. And that one was there for, as well for me. So that was where, yeah, I spent more time on music than I did, hmm. I don't know, thinking about things. But what about you, Phil?
0: Well, no, but I think that's really interesting. I think if if somebody listening to this has the time, then put the... the, put the uh, picture full screen
1: yeah
0: and just play different types of music against it
1: yeah
0: and you'll see what we deal with as filmmakers because it it is transformational i mean even beethoven i mean one of the things there's a great quote in in my in search of beethoven film where this guy says the thing about beethoven is he doesn't you know the nine famous symphonies
1: yeah
0: each one is different each one he's creating and the way he puts it is very good. He says, it creates his own sound world. Mm-hmm. So you could play a clip from any one of those symphonies against this, and each one would make the picture slightly different.
1: Yeah,
0: I mean, you've chosen symphony number six. Yeah. But if you had, well, the famous ninth.
1: Exactly. Which, I armed an
0: Yeah. for ages. And uh, because what you then do, and this is why you've got to be careful with music, because of course you're then bringing the emotion of the music onto the painting. Mm-hmm. So let's take the Ninth Symphony, if you were to use the Ninth Symphony. And the Ninth Symphony, it's interesting talking about Beethoven. I was going to talk about Beethoven anyway. So Beethoven writes that just after, pretty much, pretty much contemporaneously with this painting, actually. But 1815, the... Um, Napoleon is defeated finally at the mm. Battle of Waterloo. This has been a traumatic period for Europe. Uh, you know, the first fifteen, like the pre- previous fifteen, even twenty years. You know, from the French Revolution um, through to this moment now, so twenty-two, three decades, absolutely traumatic. You're talking hundreds of thousands, perhaps low millions of people have died. Mm-hmm because of revolutionary fervour, but also because of Napoleon's ambitions. He's finally defeated at the Battle of Waterloo by the British and Prussians. Um, And they have something called the Congress of Vienna in, I believe, 1815. And here's a little-known fact. People don't often know that Beethoven actually wrote a tenth symphony.
1: No, I didn't know that. Um,
0: In fact, he was planning to write an official tenth, but he also wrote a tenth which was... um, Kind of uh, um, what's it called? It's like a military symphony. Anyway, Congress of Vienna. The thing about the Congress of Vienna was that they felt optimistic. Okay. They thought, finally, we've defeated this dictator. We can move forwards, and so the whole thing with the with the Ninth Symphony is all about humanity coming together to work together. Finally, we can do something great. Um, and uh, and look forward to a, a you know a better future a better future now if you have that music laying over this mm. you have somebody up there who's thinking looking to the the bright future you know let's assume this is a dawn rather than a dusk and so it just changes how you see the picture on the other hand if you played something slightly maudlin mm. and a, yeah, bit, yeah. a bit gloomy mm-hmm. then you start to think well who is this guy dressed in black who's you don't see him he's got his back to us he's walked to this you also start to think a bit more about the dark slightly I don't know Mm. somber rocks then you start to think maybe you know a little bit about Caspar David Friedrich's past and the fact that before he was 20 his mother died and his two sisters died and his brother died and maybe this is him contemplating mortality and you know all the
1: same period though
0: you have, this, you have a sombre music across mm. it, uh, or you have, um, anyway, so, so music can play a huge role in how we interpret, and that's why when going back to making films, you've got to be so careful, because the painter, generally speaking, knows that his painting or her painting is going to be seen in, a, in, a, in, a, in, in silence. Yeah. Okay. Um, so when we lay music on top of it, we're kind of affecting, a way, in a way, how that painting's been interpreted.
1: But I always want to put music on top of things. Yeah. So now I'm thinking that when I go... you'd always, I will, I'm not a big headphone person, to be fair, but now I'm thinking, if I was standing in front of that mm. painting, in the flesh, because it will be so different in the flesh than what it is on the screen, I really, really would like to have Do you a,
0: know, a piece. It'd be a really good audio book, audio tour to do of a gallery where there's like, they choose 10, 20 paintings and all you're doing is standing in front of them and they change the soundtrack. Yeah.
1: They did that once went to the V&A. I mean, this is of completely off topic when I went to the David Bowie exhibition. Mm, mm, did you go to that? No. It was really, really good. Mm. And that did, that changed and played. And that was really, really good. Mm. But for obvious reasons. But Yeah. <laughs> But this is such a wonderful piece and I didn't think I would like it immediately and I didn't think I'd find it interesting but because I got so caught up with the music and the fact that he's just well like you just said then of all the things that are going on I just mm. thought maybe most of it was to do with the fact he was looking out to do with he had just I believe got married so he'd had such a
0: He's about tour, to jump
1: <laughs> <laughs> Well, there we go. (laughs) I Wanted to finish now. What I
0: meant to say was he's he's celebrating the joy, the joy (laughs) that he's feeling.
1: Well, no, because he had such a traumatic yeah childhood, and that with his brother dying, sort of, you know, he watched his brother die. There's a couple of different stories of how it happened, but they, you know, they believed... that. I mean, that would never leave you, would it? So him getting married sort of must be thinking to himself, oh, okay, new beginnings, moving forward, I've got to get over all those mm. mountains mm. to get to the other side. I mean, there is a discussion,
0: isn't there, about who that person is. I mean, I have mm. seen a couple of uh, um, self-portraits, and I think he's got kind of reddish hair in the self-portraits. Yeah. He? So, I mean, it could be him.
1: Yeah.
0: It could, I mean, it could be a form of self-portrait. He not he just says wanderer. Above the Sea of Fog. I mean, let's talk about what we can see before we talk about what we know about the period and the style of painting and all the rest of it. So, you know, when you start to look at... I mean, it is possible to see something like this and think it's a bit like a birthday card, you know. Yeah, not a lot to it. Or I miss (laughs) you, you know, can't wait to get home, I don't know. But when you start to look at it, it's actually... I mean, this is aided by the fact that I've looked at other works by Caspar David Friedrich Mm. and his landscapes, I think, are pretty tremendous. Yes. Um, In Berlin, on the, uh, what's known as Museum Island, um, which was, is in what was East Berlin and uh, quite near the Brandenburger Tor. Anyway, they've got a beautiful gallery, the old Alter Gallery, they have a section on, well, I'm talking, mentioning it now, the Romantic period.
1: Right.
0: And quite a lot of it, maybe even the most represented is Caspar David Friedrich. And his landscapes are really, they are almost kind of magical Lord of the Rings type landscapes. And,
1: well, they're, you know, they're stunning.
0: And often there are kind of silhouetted characters. Um, I think you mentioned before we started that he's only any did and some self-portraits, he rarely did.
1: Yeah, he rarely did people. He did one. It, it was wife, which is uh, where she's looking out of the window. All I'm right. having to turn my notes over. Uh, a ag- woman at the window.
0: But again, that looking which,
1: at which wasn't. I like. I like that.
0: And you know, women looking out of windows, or anyone looking out of the window, it's, it, it's symbolic of of you know looking to a future, looking to a slightly different. It's quite
1: a key pink piece, isn't it? I mean, you think of you're doing Hopper. Mm. Loads of his are looking out windows. Yeah,
0: looking out looking out windows is always a. Uh, it's, never, it's never an accident. People don't. And then
1: with the Magritte last week, or, or whenever it was. Uh, yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Was I was actually thinking about that because that was like we you don't know what was in front of the painting, out of that window, and then it could be we were saying about the the face with the apple. It's like almost, it's like a surrealist, then because we don't know what his face has got on in front of, sort of looking out, we don't know. It's just a bit early.
0: (laughs) It'd be funny if you turn around, one big apple.
1: I know, but it
0: could be. So, what I see when I see this picture is, Mm. I I, I admire the technique. Mm. Um, But actually, what strikes me is the care with which, you know, we've talked about this in other podcasts. You know, these lines are not. By accident so you think um, obviously you've got the rocks they're in a pyramid yeah so whichever whether you start from the left which is more normal or you go from the right bang they're going up to him his left leg and his walking stick create another pyramid another triangle which takes you further up his body his coat is you know, the bottom half of his coat isn't is also forming another triangle Even the fact that one of his arms is sticking out means that the upper part of his body is almost another triangle. So basically everything leads to his head, you'd Mm. think. But then, if you carry on looking, so equal to his midriff almost, you have these rocks sticking out. So they're kind of, you read across the rocks one way, the other side, slightly more distance slightly tilting down back to so everything's kind of leading again to to him but in particular and clearly it's i'm certain it's fake I'm certain he's created this in a studio um but if you look at the 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 kind of what i'd say there's the mid distance or the near far distance those two yeah lines coming down they are coming straight to oh i've just lost the picture it's not helping
1: Oh, seventh. There we are. But yeah.
0: But they're coming straight to his heart, or mm. his, his, you know, that area, his chest. Um, and in the distance, you've got another um, little pyramid, oh. haven't you? Which again is is you you go up the pyramid of rock, you come down the other side to his head, and I think that little block on the right hand side is kind of just almost looks like something out of the American Arizona desert. I think that's just a block so you don't look out of the frame. So everything's pretty much it's like, you know, these like spokes of a wheel yeah, all around his chest or perhaps you could even take it a step further and say his
1: heart. Yeah, because those two coming out of his, from his, where his arms are sort of thing, they're a sort of mirror image of each other. They actually don't look I'm not sure they look. I don't. Know, yeah. Now I've looked at it. Now here we go again. I don't know whether they look right to me now, compared to the other bits. Not that I'm going to question his painting, because I think it's wonderful. But it doesn't look. They're so. They're so identical, aren't they? Those two sort of grey. Yeah. No, they are. Whatever they are in the distance.
0: No, they're. That's what I'm saying. They mm. the, They're in the studio, and they have one element, one point to them, which is to point to, his chest. Right. And I think you don't necessarily point at someone at the chest. Basically, I think it's pointing to his heart. So I, I think he's making a point. Yeah. And I think then, and then of course, what you start to do with paintings is you start to perhaps over-analyse them, or you're incorrectly analysing them. But I don't think he's maudlin or depressed, or I think he's he's. And I think this is part of the Romantic period. I think he's celebrating landscape, nature, the natural world. Mm. um,
1: Your own mortality, insignificance, everything on that painting. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say, obviously, how he's feeling.
0: And the fact that he's... And I think the fact that it's a silhouette is intentional because you're not interested in... It doesn't, you know... It is a person reflecting on what he... I think it'd be pretty safe to say. So he, what he can see. Yes. If he's looking at us, then it's all. Well, what's his, what's his face telling yeah. us? And what's, you know, mm. It's all about him, and the, the landscape's just a backdrop. No. We we are that person.
1: When you get to the top of anything though, like mountains or hills, and you have got a gorgeous view, you do all. Do you always stop? Yes. Yeah. You always stop. Yeah. You always take a look. You always contemplate nature. Oh, I don't know how it's. You know.
0: I wonder if any other, if there are any other mammals, animals, whatever, actually admire the view.
1: Yeah. Or whether
0: we're unique in that. A lion. Was it? Would he be admiring <laughs> the view, or was he just looking for?
1: I don't know now. Food. I think you're right.
0: It's hard. I mean, really I'm
1: not. Is, it's hard to. We need to speak to David Attenborough. I mean, I don't think. <laughs> We need David. He like must him. know. There has to be... But do you think, you no, know, know because chimps,
0: like, yeah. if a chimp goes to the top of mm. a tree in a jungle, is he looking out going, that's a lovely view? Or is he thinking, where's my next lunch coming from? <laughs> so we're, we're unique in that, aren't we? As, are we actually
1: as, unique with the painting, though, because a chimp. Does chimps, do well, chimps go they, and get, get some
0: they talk about charcoal
1: and do yeah, some drawings?
0: I, I think we are unique. I mean, if, to talk about chimps, you know creating art and but I mean it's, it's a bit of a stretch isn't it
1: <laughs> alright um, <laughs> but no definitely eagles eagles aren't flying around admiring a view are they no they're literally looking for food
0: so we are he, he's asking us to reflect on we, we are we are that individual looking out over that landscape and reflecting and again bear in mind 1817 Europe has been traumatised yeah um, as I say I, I would suspect millions of people have died and um, this is somebody that's, that's come through it I, you know we know a little bit about his biography he's personally as, a, as an artist as an individual come through trauma and he still seems young and strong enough that he's got a future ahead of him this particular person um, saying, yeah. it's obviously a, you know that's probably a two three hour trek to get there
1: yeah look at his clothes Phil I mean, look what we, we would be wearing if we were doing that. Yeah,
0: he looks pretty well dressed, actually, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah comparatively. But then, wanderer above a sea of fog. So, I mean, if that was if that was the title of a poem, mm. you know, you'd know that there's that's somebody searching for answers in the miasma of difficulties and obstacles that we all face on a daily basis. So, I think there's also that being reflected. Um,
1: I was saying to you wasn't I that Turner was about the same time mm. as him, and there is some similarities in some of their paintings,
0: yeah definitely
1: because of the uh, I mean I, you know wasn't didn't really know much about Turner, but I looked at some of some of his paintings and I, I mean, they're wonderful the especially the seascapes with the with the, with all the ships and things like that so you know it uh, it definitely I wonder, I wonder if they ever met I always ask this because I know that there's so many people out there that listen and I think to them say, oh, I'm sure they'll know I'm sure they'll know if they did or they even I, quite liked each other's I work I think it's
0: almost impossible you think so you? Mm. and uh, highly unlikely I don't know but highly unlikely they would have even seen each other's paintings yeah um, I suppose
1: that time yeah
0: I mean you had to and we see this with the Impressionists you know a few decades later when Manet wanted to see the works of the Spanish artists that he'd heard about, he had to go to the Prado in Madrid. Um, that's the only way you would see the the Velazquez um, or right. the Goyas, or um, and you know you're at the start then of paintings starting to travel and exhibitions and so forth. And there's a famous exhibition in the Louvre of Spanish works, and all all these artists kind of flocked to it. But at this point not so much no okay Um, so in terms of the more kind of broader scene that um friedrich is representing it's it's what we call romanticism and they did absolutely kind of um, idealize nature okay Um, and it said that they were kind of suspicious of science and industrialization you know the world is changing very quickly at this point and i think you had to be quite lucky to be benefiting from it frankly yeah you know you go to manchester now and there's some wonderful build wonderful hotels that you stay in i mean there's a hotel we stay in which is an old mill and it's a fantastic hotel but if you just stop for 30 seconds i think oh, my god yeah, so it it? work there, yeah. what a nightmare mm-hmm. i mean it's like the poor people working in these, these types of mills today in somewhere like Bangladesh
1: um, imagine if they saw that now as a hotel Yeah. <laughs> no, um, nothing romantic about that for them, no way
0: <laughs> and so um, you know literature, poetry, painting music um, now when I did the four in search of films yeah um, I didn't do them in, in this order but there is I mean it turned out that the four composers that I focused on basically cover what is what is actually properly known as classical music. Um, we talk about classical music and often would be more broad but actually the classical music period is from Haydn mm-hmm. because he comes out of the baroque and you go into the classical with him and he come out of so Haydn. Mozart, Beethoven, Chopin. That's right. the chronological order. And when you come out of Chopin, you're leaving classical music and going into romantic music. Okay. The romantic period. Now, what is the transition to those four pieces of music? Well, Haydn wore the livery. You know, he was a servant. Mm-hmm. And he wore the livery, the, the costume, if you like, of the Esterhazy princes that he worked for. He had a long life. He actually ultimately worked for four of them. And basically on a Monday morning, he'd be called into the office and they'd say, need a symphony on Saturday. We've got you know, Laura and her husband are coming over, <laughs> write a symphony. Yes, sir. And and Haydn would go off. He had a relatively small orchestra and he'd write a piece. Understanding think, yeah, this yeah, is yeah. quite interesting because then... He had a relatively small orchestra and to keep them happy he'd sometimes give them like solo works. So there's a very famous horn concerto by Haydn which is still played to this day. It's beautiful. He wrote it to keep his horn player happy. Okay. I love
1: that. Um,
0: And uh, so employee Mozart. Mm -hmm. Mozart comes along arguably, ultimately the greatest composer of all time. Discuss. Um, (laughs) But... He, too, is an employee of the Archbishop uh, uh, um, uh, in Salzburg and then the court. He, too, had to wear a livery and he hated it. Right. And he got very upset because on, they went on tour, went on a, they journeyed somewhere, and he was told that he'd be sitting downstairs with the, with the cooks eating. And he, he said, I'm not having that. I'm as good as any of the rest of you. And he got kicked out, <laughs> literally got kicked out uh, uh, on his ass. Uh, and then he basically started a, an independent career as a, as a composer. Now, contemporary, well, Mozart dies in 1791, 1792. Um, Beethoven arrives in Vienna and uh, he's born in Bonn. He has managed to persuade his prince, that also controls him, um, to let him go to, to Vienna to study. As it happens, uh, he, he, he's very naughty, uh, doesn't do what he's supposed to do, um, but Napoleon's troops have arrived in Bonn, that prince has fled, because the, the prince has told Beethoven, you're not doing what you're supposed to do. Right. Haydn, who he's gone to learn from, has written to the to the Prince saying he's just not, he's not, he's not doing his work. He pretends to, have, anyway, tells he tells me he's got no money. And then, so the, but the Prince has said, you've got to come back to Bonn. <laughs> Beethoven then, had he left Vienna, we probably, we might not have heard of him. But just at that moment, Napoleon's armies are arriving. Prince flees, Beethoven thinks, great, I'll stay in Vienna. He stays in Vienna pretty much as an independent musician. Uh If the court called, and they would call, and they say, "Come up! There's a pope. There's a somebody. There's a bishop coming through. You need to give him a piano lesson." Well, Beethoven would have to do it. But pretty much, he was an independent musician. But he's still writing grand works. Right. Yeah. I'm rattling through this a bit. All the films, of course, available at (laughs) seventh-art.com. Although oh, I mean, this
1: is really interesting film.
0: But not entirely relevant, but, no, but it, it is relevant, because then you get to Chopin. Mm-hmm. Now Chopin, who's the, who has been absolutely enthralled, he's born in Warsaw, he's, in, or in Poland. he's enthralled by these, what he, what he hears from these other musicians. He makes his way ultimately to Vienna. He only writes in his entire life, I think, six orchestral works. What he wants to do is to play the piano and write very intimate, romantic, we call them romantic works. What he's doing is he's expressing himself
1: Uh in a way that Haydn
0: would never claim to be expressing his personal emotions. Of course, they are to some extent. But but Chopin, if I remember correctly, he only did 30 performances to an audience in his entire life. And some of those were in England and Scotland at the end when he had to do it for money. Uh So it becomes mm-hmm. becomes more introverted. It becomes much more a, a statement of one of the one of. I mean, Ronald Broutigan, one of the best pianists in the world. I remember him saying in the film, I, "I struggle to play Chopin because it's so personal." Right. It's almost like the only person that can play this kind of personal music is Chopin himself. Well, I mean, that's interesting. So all this is happening. Yeah. At the same time as people are starting to paint like this, these are these are not grand grandiose historical paintings no they're not um you know no longer are we getting napoleon crossing the alps on his steed even though he crossed on the mule um (laughs) uh you know we move now to the individual yeah and thinking about the individuals thinking about himself in this case it's a him um and you know considering nature and this is a, a development in art and this artist is, is kind of at the peak of that isn't he
1: well the thinking paintings he's wanting us to think
0: yeah
1: but no one you're right about the Chopin there no one can think with absolutely no idea what is going through his head yeah. at all
0: in fact I wonder how often before this you've had paintings where the character has their back to you you don't, don't even see their face is I don't know it's, it's irrelevant yeah um
1: And yet all it's done is made loads of questions for us. Yeah. And we've got no answers. Well, on that. Yeah. On that, that, yeah. Back to the library. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Back to real life.
0: So I would say that um, all these films, uh, as I've been talking about, are available. We've got films about artists from this period. Uh, Go to 7-art.com to have a look. And we'll be back soon. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy the painting of the week, then, um, as I'm sure you know, there are two previous seasons of 20 episodes each you might want to uh, have a listen to and find some of those artists that you know and love and maybe check out some artists you might not know so well. And please, if you do enjoy the podcast, It's uh, super if you can share the link, uh, let others know, um, write us a nice review. All these things kind of help. And it's nice for us to know that there are people out there enjoying what we do as much as we enjoy doing it. Thank you very much. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Painting of the Week podcast. For more information, please visit our website at 7th-art.com or contact us by emailing info at 7th-art.com. See you next time.